even when you go to like a the AAR SBL conference, what you have is sort of individual scholars fighting and clawing to try to be heard, you know, to try to kind of carve out a space for themselves because the profession demands it of them. And that's so very different than this idea of trying to figure out what we can sort of think together collaboratively and why thinking together matters in a world that elevates individual accomplishment sort of over all else and pits us against one another. So for me, that religious literacy that goes hand in hand with the model of collaboration that I think is Webster's hallmark. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of West Star scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hello, my name is Matthew Baker, and this is Interrupted. A couple weeks back, Jordan Miller and I spoke with Jeff Robbins, who some of you may know is chairman of the board for Westar and also chairs the God and the Human Future Seminar. Additionally, Jeff is Professor of Religion and Director of American Studies at Lebanon Valley College. He's an author and editor of a number of books, uh, a few of which were co-authored by fellow Westar scholar Clayton Crockett. I only mention that because it's relevant to the discussion, uh, as you'll hear, especially as it relates to the I don't know, I was going to say overarching theme, but maybe through line is a better way to say it, of uh, collaboration, of collaborative scholarship and so on, which Jeff is very much uh, an advocate for. Um, and at one point during the discussion, he refers to that as the West Star way. And so, I don't know, that just sort of has a nice little ring to it for my ear. So that's the title of this episode. Hope you enjoy it. We're at westarinterrupted.com. Peace. This is great. It's just fantastic to have a chance to speak to you about, you know, your life, your work, your involvement with Westar and so on. Um, yeah, I want to give you a chance to tell us who you are and tell us that story of how you got involved in Westar and kind of connecting that to your early religious experiences and that sort of thing. My understanding is you came out of an evangelical context and that sort of, I don't know, differential, I guess, between that thought world and where you are now, that makes me just want to ask, how'd you get from point A to B? So can you tell us about that journey and connect that up to Westar maybe? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to, to say that it all started with a prayer in, in Waco, Texas, when I was a student at Baylor, um, probably my sophomore year. Um, 
Jordan's probably heard me tell this story before, but um, sometimes I describe it as the only true prayer I've ever prayed. And I remember it being kind of at a, at a spiritual or emotional kind of breaking point for me. Um, I felt like I was um, burning the candle at both ends, uh, really had a very effortful spiritual life. I was trying very hard to make um, kind of commitment to Christian discipleship work for me um, as a college student. And I was, uh, you know, took very seriously my role as a, as a kind of mentor at the Baptist Student Union. I was very involved um, in young life. And um, I also was a college student trying to maintain relationships, had a pretty serious girlfriend, you know, had standard kind of roommate issues, all that kind of stuff. And, and I just remember being uh, at a point of exhaustion and it was uh, Easter weekend and we were hosting a kind of Stations of the Cross kind of event on the Brazos River at the Suspension Bridge in Waco, Texas. And after the event was over in which I was kind of reflecting on uh, Jesus's dying words at one of the Stations of the Cross and the kind of crowd had kind of moved from my station to another station, um, I remember finding myself in tears and kind of crying out to God and making a kind of promise and commitment then uh, that I would follow the truth wherever it led me. And at the time, my, my kind of sense, my conviction, my hope, my faith was that uh, was found in the, the scripture where Jesus says, I am the way, truth, and the life. And so by making a commitment to the truth, I was in my way also kind of committing myself to Jesus. In my commitment to Jesus, I trusted in the truth. I'm not sure which, which comes first. Um, I think at that point in time, it was the commitment to Jesus um, and so a, a kind of confidence in the truth. But I had a sense then that I wasn't sure where that would lead. Um, but I remember the result was almost immediately this kind of feeling of relief washed over me and this kind of pressure for me to try to do more to make this kind of spiritual journey work for me and for others. I, I all of a sudden sort of that had a sort of relief that kind of pressure wasn't on me any longer. And um, in the months to come or the semesters to come, all of a sudden I, I felt much more at ease with the kind of questions that were bubbling up in my mind, but I was, I was afraid to ask because I was afra afraid of where they might lead. Um, but then I would remind myself that I had nothing to fear from the truth because the truth and Jesus were one and the same, um, in my mind. And so, um, it was not long after that, that I, uh, began to take some, some courses in which I was exposed to different religious traditions. For the first time, I began to learn a bit about the history of Christianity and realized that my own kind of evangelical Southern Baptist tradition was, I guess for lack of a better term, just very parochial, very limited and limiting. 
Um, so at that point, I started uh, experimenting with going to different denominations. I started going to an Episcopal church for the first time. I uh, loved the, the liturgy and the kind of poetry of the service. And I, uh, as I learned more about the history of Christianity, the more some of the kind of familiar terms to me, uh, I realized that they had a sort of deeper and broader meaning to them. And that really sort of set me on this kind of path of, of wanting to know more about theology and to realize that, um, I guess, to me, sort of theology was asking these fundamental questions and not necessarily sort of knowing the answer in advance of asking those questions and feeling kind of safe and secure in that unknown and that unknowability of those questions. I, I sometimes say that I kind of thought myself out of my evangelical background and the kind of limitations that it presented to me and the kind of guilt that I experienced as a result of the of always having these kind of questions in the back of my mind and feeling like I shouldn't have those questions. But these things, I mean, I, I think it's important in, for me, at least in my own self-understanding, that it wasn't that I was trying to break free necessarily, at least in a conscious way. But it was a, a way of kind of going deeper into the faith as I understood it or the tradition as I understood it. And it was in doing that that I realized that that sort of tradition had a much kind of broader history and a deeper meaning. So that set me on a path of uh, once I graduated from college um, and looking to attend sort of seminaries or wanting to do kind of graduate study in religion or theology, um, knowing for sure I wanted to go to a place that was more ecumenically minded, that allowed for a kind of broader questioning and where I could experience a little bit more diversity of thought. And then, you know, same with the kind of PhD track that I was on. And it was while I was in graduate school, I mean, not to make West Art too important to that part of the story, but I certainly was exposed to the, the work of the Jesus Seminar while in seminary. Um, one of my New Testament professors was involved in the Jesus Seminar. Uh, he was not a prominent member, but I remember him coming back from meetings and talking about this gathering of 50 or 60 or 70 scholars who are pouring through the words of Jesus and trying their best to determine what was historically accurate and what what wasn't or what was reliable or what could be said with confidence and what couldn't. And I was just fascinated by this idea that they were able to approach scripture in this kind of collaborative spirit with a kind of research that was unfettered by any kind of dogmatic claims or any kind of ecclesiastical strictures that kind of model stuck in the back of my head and I didn't really ever think about how it might apply to my own work until decades later, really, when I got an invitation from John Caputo, or I guess I got an invitation from David Galston, who is the executive director of Westar, who got my name from John Caputo. Um, and the invitation was basically uh, letting me know that they were starting the God Seminar and they wanted me to be a part of it. Um, and they explained uh, that Westar had continued this kind of work of unfettered research and the kind of collaborative model since the time of the seminar, which I was unfamiliar with. 
And so I jumped at the opportunity, the idea of trying to figure out what that might mean in a more theological context was something that uh, had great appeal to me. So I, I still think it's a kind of continuation of the path that sort of began for me as an undergraduate student during my time at Baylor. There was something in there that I, I found really interesting and sort of resonated with me personally um, was this sort of permission that you granted yourself or was or was given to that you felt to continue to ask those questions no matter where they lead, right? And I know that for me personally, it was um, it was kind of like my own personal form of fundamentalism that gave me permission to ask those questions, right? My starting point was foundational premise. Jesus is, or the, the Christian God is a God of forgiveness. I was like, oh, so all questions are on the table. It's all fair game, you know? Mm. So there's a level of uh, radical trust there, right? That wherever the truth leads, it's, it's okay. If you don't mind, let me answer yeah. that too. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, that kind of permission to ask questions, uh, that sort of trust as you described it, I think was so foundational for me. And then... As I was already sort of on that path, that's when I started reading um, a lot of biographical studies of Martin Luther. It was for a college class, again, just kind of by coincidence. And I was so struck by this sort of notion of from Luther that uh, we can sin and sin boldly. And the idea of uh, alien righteousness, that the idea when God looks at us, he sees us bathed and uh, Jesus's own righteousness. I only realized then that I, that this sort of natural questioning, inquisitive spirit, was overlaid with this kind of sense of internal guilt within me, and to no longer feel guilt for asking questions, um, it really altered the course of my life. And I, I don't, and I don't know where that that guilt came from. I don't remember ever being told by certainly not my parents. My parents were, were thoughtful people when they, they loved and affirmed me. They never told me my questions were inappropriate. Um, I never really remember in church necessarily being told that or in Sunday school. Um, but somehow the mismatch between the kind of promises as I understood them of the gospel and my own kind of lived reality, the kind of mismatch or the kind of discrepancy between that was so great uh, that I just assumed I must be doing something wrong. It must somehow be my fault. So to to kind of see that reflected in someone else and to see how they themselves kind of were able to overcome that and experience a kind of deep freedom was transformational for me. And returning to the point on collaboration, which you mentioned, what would you say has been, other than uh, a sort of maybe innate attraction to a collaborative ethos or right one that does scholarship and community what would you say has been the greatest benefit of that right is there something that you could point to or uh where, where we where you would say like confidently this this would not have happened this would not have evolved in this way this line of questioning or whatever it is um not to sound again overly christian here i guess i just can't help myself but like what fruit has been born of that you know yeah, for me, I, I mean, I, I saw the potential in the first meeting I attended. Um, and people familiar with Westar will kind of know that the annual meeting that Westar has had traditionally in the spring was always at 
the Flamingo Hotel in Santa Rosa, California. And so the first meeting I ever attended or the first um, direct experience I had with Westar was at, at this meeting where the God Seminar pretty much was convened. Um, they'd had a sort of a planning meeting at the AAR SBL meeting that fall, but this was the first kind of straight meeting of the, of the God Seminar. And it was only about a year or two after one of the, the last meetings that Caputo hosted at Syracuse University um, on Paul and the Philosophers. So um, this was when, you know, the work of Badu and Slavoj Zizek and, and others on the kind of philosophical appropriation of, of St. Paul or the Apostle Paul uh, was very much in vogue. And Caputo's idea was we would bring the, the historians who knew Paul and the New Testament and early sort of the first century of Christian history the best. We'll bring them together with these philosophers. And this should be a very kind of productive conversation. But instead it was like ships passing in the night. The philosophers had their sort of, their preferred Paul and they really weren't all that interested in what the historians had to say. And the historians were very dismissive of the philosophical claims about Paul or what the philosophers had to say about Paul. And so um, it just seemed like a, the conversation didn't go anywhere. And it was a missed opportunity in my mind because I was interested in the history and the philosophy, uh, not to mention the theology. And so going to Westar, what I noticed was you had that same kind of dynamic or those same kind of personality types. I mean, the historians were suspicious of the theologians and the critical theorists and the philosophers. And the, that latter group all probably could have stood to have learned a lot from the historians uh, because the historians knew the, the world sort of much better. But for the most part, they were speaking different language. They were uh, using sort of different uh, methodology and so I, what I realized at that first meeting is the only way this conversation is ever going to happen in a fruitful way that's going to bear some good fruit is if you're able to kind of build up trust over time. And uh, that, that takes time and it takes a kind of commitment and it's, you know, part of it's sort of built on relationships and part of it's sort of built on a mutual respect. Uh, that's born over time. And so I think the first time I saw evidence of that uh, was probably about two years later when Richard Carney came to a meeting at John Caputo's invitation. And we were kind of working our way through what we were calling then the varieties of post-theism. And so uh, Richard Carney's um, anatheism was one of the models we wanted to explore together. And... Um, Carney did his thing and he was charming. He told great stories and he- He uh, is a charmer, yeah. Yeah, and he, and he was the kind of appeal of anatheism and the, the kind of ways in which he had kind of carved out a space, a theoretical space for what he was contributing to this conversation about the varieties of post-theism sort of resonated with, with a lot of us there. But one of the- founding members of the Jesus Seminar and one of the kind of towering intellects of Westar wasn't charmed at all by him. 
and and the the fact that Carney played fast and loose with um, the gospel texts and kind of conflated the four texts together in his kind of uh, rendering of who or what Jesus was all about totally went against the the findings of Westar and of the Jesus seminar. And when sort of presented with that, instead of Carney kind of accepting that and realizing maybe that this provides even a more complex possibility for his uh, still developing thought about anatheism, there was a kind of defensiveness on his part. The conversation could have ended there. And, you know, in point of fact, in terms of Carney's own kind of participation in the God Seminar, it did end there. But it's not that he was unkind or ungracious or anything like that. He was he was there for one meeting to talk about his work, and, and that was the end of it. Um, but meanwhile, those of us who were committed to pushing this conversation forward as a part of the God Seminar had to figure out what to do about that. And so at the end of that meeting, I think this was the first time that we developed our own practice of coming up with a, a, a set of voting propositions on the spot um, that grew out of the conversation or lack of conversation that we were having, in this case, between the philosopher and the historian. And Jordan knows this, the, the kind of language of our voting propositions better than I do, but my memory of that was that we had to carve out a space for ourselves that kind of acknowledged our indebtedness to the work of the historical seminar, seminars, but also our kind of independence from them. We had to sort of claim for ourselves a kind of an alternative methodology that kind of respected uh, the work of philosophy and theology as its own kind of discourse. And so instead of that conversation ending there, or like instead of that conversation being repeated one meeting after a next and always sort of the invited guest sort of being shut down by the historians, what we did was came up with a kind of proposition that we all agreed on that um, allowed us to kind of move through that potential roadblock and kind of set the stage for the productive conversations that we had to follow. I've got the propositions. Okay, uh, yeah. This was spring 2016, right? Sounds right, yeah. The instability of metaphor assures that religion is a perpetual problem for humankind. While in conversation with historical critical work in biblical scholarship, the task of the God Seminar is informed but not confined to historical factual truths. Theology engages in theopoetics to creatively reimagine God after the death of God of sovereign power. And Paul's letters are not engaged in constructive metaphysical discourse, but in cultural and political theopoetics. And so that, I mean, so we kind of found our way as a seminar that, well, that was one of the many touch points where we found our way as a seminar there. And saying that, I, what, what I mean is that um, we w were able to understand that we wanted to, again, sort of acknowledge the work of these historical seminars, but we no longer could simply kind of duplicate what they had done when they were sort of doing their work. And, and largely what they do as a part of their work is that 
they will have their questions that they vote on well in advance of their meetings. So each author who sort of presents a paper will also include with that paper a set of theses that they want uh, the seminar people to vote on, the fellows to vote on. Um, and we tried that early on, but it always felt very kind of forced. But beginning at that meeting, what happens is a group of us, you know, as the conversations happening, begin to workshop, you know, what is, what's important about this conversation that we want to kind of enter into the record so that we can um, kind of register it and then sort of move on from it. That was more of a kind of methodological point. But, you know, several meetings later is when sort of uh, we had the same kind of process in which we really declared ourselves uh, in a very direct way to have a kind of decolonial option as a part of our work. Um, And then sort of that's given us the opportunity to then explain not only to ourselves, but also to the audience of associates and the wider kind of Westar public why we've made that declaration and why it's so important to our own kind of self-understanding. Because as far as a lot of people are concerned, uh, they would like us to simply kind of do this kind of work of deconstruction and sort of kind of reclaim the kind of reassurances of a kind of liberal theology. And when we've pushed against that, uh, sometimes there's been a lot of resistance or like some kind of frustration that we don't sort of understand this language or we don't understand why it's necessary. You know, this is not sort of the kind of language that my church talks about all that often. And so um, now that we've sort of made that declaration and sort of had that kind of effort to explain why we are, we found ourselves where we are, I think it sort of gives us a firmer footing to stand on. To this point about explaining things to the public, could you talk a little bit about Westar's vision and mission? You know, what, why bother doing all this work? Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that really attracts me to Westar um, in distinction from, you know, my own research um, or my own kind of efforts at, you know, writing monographs or even sort of collaborative sort of books that I've co-authored. The part of the mission of, of Westar, number one, is doing cutting edge research in religion. But equally important is communicating that to the public or that commitment to religious literacy um, and that kind of recognition that if we're not doing that kind of work, then that leaves this sort of vacuum for some of the the kind of most reactionary or simple-minded voices to have a kind of stranglehold on what counts as religious discourse. Um, So that kind of commitment to religious literacy or that commitment to communicating our findings to the public is at the heart of the West Star mission. Um, and I find that really appealing. It's also really hard. Um, yeah, I was gonna say, because on one hand, it would seem like that would entail or necessitate a kind of simplification of the work that's being done there. But really a lot of the work as I take it is sort of complexifying the story, right? Yeah. So it's like twofold. Um, how does that usually work in your, in your experience? Yeah, it's been um, mixed results. I mean, I think this podcast is part of that larger effort um, to um, find various modes of communicating to the public. Um, 
one thing that you know Jordan and others have pointed out, Karen Bray has pointed out on many occasions, um, and I think she's a sort of really effective communicator. I think Jordan sort of speaks clearly and without uh, kind of apology uh, about sort of our convictions. But there's nothing that's more kind of difficult or complex or denser or <laughs> impossible to understand about sort of our work when you compare it to the kind of minutia of biblical scholarship. Oh, that's uh, fair. <laughs> but yet it's been, you know, 30 years of uh, this particular public, Westar's public, who, who's done the work, who's familiarized themselves with a lot of, you know, source cr criticism and, and redaction and immerse themselves in the world of the kind of first century. Um, and so they're using um, equally technical language, the, the historical seminars are, but the, uh, the Westar audience is, is sufficiently sort of literate in, in that discourse so that they're able to recognize what's at stake in those discussions. And so uh, what we've tried to do is to first, you know, carve out a space for ourselves that we're, we're speaking a different language perhaps. Uh, we're drawing on a different uh, research methodology and there are gonna be some kind of concepts that might be unfamiliar uh, but give it enough time and sort of trust that sort of there is something at stake in these conversations. And um, eventually we're, we're going to sort of find our way together. And it, there is a kind of back and forth. I mean, you know, maybe sort of right out of the gate when we sort of tried to have certain conversations, we ourselves weren't even sure why we were having these particular conversations. Um, but now by kind of going back over our history and sort of looking at the record of voting propositions that we have, I think we have a much clearer sense of, of what we've been able to accomplish together and to begin to, to kind of craft a narrative of why this matters. Um, and that's why the kind of the, the work in the next couple of years, I think is going to be really important because you know, as, as the God seminars entered into what we call phase two, in which the, the kind of focus is more on uh, the human future and less on the varieties of post-theism, those of us who are kind of leading the effort in phase one need to kind of go back and sort of write that, that manuscript to tell the stories about sort of what we accomplished together in phase one even as we are sort of continuing to sort of push new boundaries in phase two of our work. So those things are happening simultaneously. And that's what's, that's what's been going on in Westar for the last several decades. I mean, the, the kind of model for us there is this really sort of exciting new publication that's coming out of the Christianity seminar. Um, it's called After, After Jesus Before Christianity. It's the product of the last at least sort of decade of their work together in which they focused on uh, the first two centuries of Christian history, really before there was such a thing called Christianity. Right. Um, and it's a groundbreaking work. They kind of were clear about, okay, now we're at a stopping point and we, we can sort of say certain things with confidence about what we believe 
the first two centuries looked like. And we can sort of hand the reins of, of kind of directing the future of the seminar over to a new group of people. And they're going to, they're going to do that work. But meanwhile, we have to make sure that we tell this story in a way that's going to engage the public. And I think the fact that they, they were able to uh, write this book and, and it's, it's due out with Harper one um, in the next couple of months is testimony to the fact that this is a story that people see as having sort of great potential with resonating with the public. Yeah. I wasn't even aware of that uh, book. What, just for people who are interested, what's that called so they can find it? It's called After Jesus Before Christianity. Um, I think it's going to be published in September or October of this year. Mm-hmm. And so part, uh, just thinking about sort of West Arm more generally in my capacity as uh, chair of the board, uh, we just allocated um, additional funding to assist Harper One with the kind of advanced publicity of that of that book. And so the aim is to get in bookstores, to get in different sort of reading groups and book clubs and and hopefully get a lot of media coverage. There was a time when the the product of the Jesus seminar was was being covered by the network news. I mean, there was a special done by Peter Jennings. There was a sort of PBS did a special, um, you know, Time Magazine, sort of other sort of major media outlets were covering uh, their findings. And, and so we feel like we're in a position where this particular book, if, if people pick it up and really digest it, it is every bit as kind of revolutionary and kind of upending the narrative of the first two centuries of Christian history as the work of the Jesus Seminar was about the historical Jesus. So it's really exciting time for Westar. That's fascinating. I'm looking forward to uh, checking that out. I didn't know that was was happening, so I'm excited. I wanted to like circle back to one of the things that you were saying about literacy and framing it within the, at least within the God Seminar, I suppose. and the story that you were telling about those sort of problems you were initially having between the historical folks and the more philosophical wing, it just seems like it, the theme there is a sort of transgressing of discursive boundaries as a, as a practice. Um, and that in itself is part of the literacy, right? Um, where did I want to go with that? There is a point to that. Yeah, I guess I wanted to get your take on that sort of uh, spat, I suppose, I know you're engaged with Deleuze and stuff like that. And there's a sort of like larger metaphysical critique of uh, the original and the copy. How does that fold into, into that discussion? Um, like what, where do you stand on it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, do I answer that as a, as a, <laughs> I don't care what hat you put on. You just got to pick one. Trying to think about it in connection with religious literacy more broadly. Um, yeah. I mean, sometimes when, when I think about religious literacy in terms like I think that are, people are most familiar with, like Stephen Prothero, um, who's written a great book on religious literacy. I lo- use it in my you know, religion classes at, at the college where I teach. Um, but for what religious literacy means in that context is, you know, do you know the Ten Commandments? you know how many sort of gospels there are? Do you know what the sacred text of Islam is? 
where Hinduism might be the dominant religion sort of geographically, you know, those kinds of things that I think are, are incredibly important for an educated public. And, you know, the fact that our policymakers, uh, and this, this goes way back to the immediate sort of aftermath of 9-11 and the war on terror, the fact that our elected representatives didn't know the first thing about the differences between Sunni Islam and Shia Islam, and they were making consequential decisions, life and death decisions about sort of war making in Afghanistan and Iraq and the easy sort of conflation between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. To be fair, they probably didn't know the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism right, right. either. But, so, but that conflation of, of one with the other could only happen if uh, the public was sufficiently religiously illiterate, you know? So that religious literacy, I think, is really important. I think when Westar is talking, when, or at least as I understand sort of Westar's commitment to religious literacy, it's, it is that, um, but it's more than that. It's also the idea that religious research matters, that what sort of historians have sort of learned about, you know, Christian origins matters. I mean, the, the kind of mythologization of the history of Christianity is every bit as consequential as uh, the kind of mythologization of uh, the kind of transition from sort of the historical Jesus to the Christ of faith, you know? And then, so likewise, like in an age where the kind of public's appreciation of the humanities is that in a state of crisis, you know, under assault from the kind of logic of neoliberalism, whatever you want to say, um, in which, you know, colleges and universities are sort of cutting back and sort of potential students no longer see the appeal of a, you know, of maybe of a liberal arts education, whatever. Um, this, this idea that Westar can be a place that says that there's a real kind of value and importance to these kinds of discussions, that the ability to kind of think critically, to kind of come together in a public and to kind of hash out our points and to kind of argue and to try to kind of reach, if not some consensus, at least kind of mark the occasions in which our conversations are no longer um, working together. I mean, that, that whole kind of idea of living out uh, this kind of discourse and this kind of agonistic way of, of reasoning. I think it's, it's so, um, it's so refreshing. Mm -hmm. It's so rare. I mean, even when you go to like a like AAR SBL conference, what you have is sort of individual scholars, like fighting and clawing to try to be heard, you know, to try to kind of carve out a space for themselves because the profession demands it of them. Um, and that's sort of so very different than, than sort of this idea of trying to figure out what we can sort of think together collaboratively and why thinking together matters in a world that elevates individual accomplishments sort of over all else and pits us against one another. So for me, that religious literacy that goes hand in hand with the model of collaboration that I think is Westar's hallmark. 
And I'm not sure that that answered your question at all, but it just kind of. No, not, not exactly, but uh, it was still uh, appreciated. <laughs> we don't need to revisit it. It's not that, it's not that important, but yeah, I mean, sort of just kind of staying along that collaborative um, uh, line of questioning. I wanted to ask you about your relationship, your collaboration with another, who I, th- I think is a West Star scholar, uh, co-conspirator, Clayton yeah. Crockett. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, jo- so Jordan uh, likes to refer to y'all as the Hall and Oates of radical <laughs> theology. I guess there was a- I got that, I got that from George Schmidt. <laughs> I have to give George credit there. Oh, good citation. Um, <laughs> I prefer more of a Burton Ernie thing. I don't know, that's just like right. my, my uh, preference, but- I think Mary Jane uh, Rubenstein, one time in uh, an AAR session, um, she she used the burden or any reference. Oh, did she see? That, that was that was delightful to me. I mean, I couldn't. <laughs> Which one are you? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I the fact that I had the same idea as uh, MJR, I'll I'll take it. Um, but I figured just like since we're talking about you know collaboration and stuff like that for the general theological task or for scholarship or whatever. I don't know, I figured maybe you'd have something to say about that particular relationship or maybe any others that that come to mind. Yeah, I don't think I would have, uh, my relationship with Clayton is, has been, you know, one of the joys of my professional life uh, without, without a doubt. Um, he was finishing up at Syracuse University when I was starting and he was always so, uh, wonderful about reaching out to the kind of younger generation of students or the, the students who were coming after him. And as soon as he had had any kind of professional opportunities, he made it a point of sharing those opportunities with others. And, and not everyone kind of took advantage of those opportunities, but um, I was always really grateful for it. And um, it was never one of, there was not any kind of patron client kind of relationship. It was very much a kind of relationship of equals. Um, and Clayton is someone who is very much sort of enlivened by ideas. Um, he can hardly talk about anything besides ideas. And uh, we had the benefit of when, I, and when Noel and I moved to Pennsylvania, he had sort of family who lived nearby. So in addition to seeing each other at professional conferences, we would also see each other whenever he would be visiting family. And um, every time I had a phone conversation with him or every time we got together for dinner, without even knowing it, Clayton would always say, finish our conversation with uh, the phrase, keep working, keep thinking. And I think that sort of captures sort of Clayton, Clayton's personality quite well, keep working, keep thinking. For me, it was, um, I, I needed that, um, that co-conspirator, as you described him. Um, sometimes I describe him as my taskmaster, um, but I, I say that only sort of in jest because it's been a labor of, of love and respect and appreciation. Um, and I think early on um, with the death of Charles Winquist, who was our, our, both of our dissertation advisors and Noel's as well, um, very much we felt like orphans um, in the kind of larger academic world and professional world and having each other to kind of lean on and to encourage and to have someone who would, who was always a kind of faithful reader of my work and, um, and sort of being able to kind of champion the, the kind of effort I was making in my early research 
that was so valuable, um, so inspirational. It was a real gift. Um, and it's a gift of friendship. Yeah. It keeps on giving. So um, we've done a lot of work together. Part of that is simply just because our, we, we share a similar work ethic. Uh, we like to work. We enjoy our work. When we start something, we like to complete it. And not every, I've discovered not everyone's like that. <laughs> no judgment on anyone for, for not being like that, but just that's the way we were. So early on, we were making sure that the opportunities we were given, we made sure that we sort of took full advantage of. But it, it, it developed more into a kind of effort to kind of think together with one another. And I, I guess that sort of idea of collaboration, of trying to experiment with how you can think together with someone else, uh, which preceded my discovery of Westar and the Westar way, uh, made us both kind of well-suited to uh, kind of appreciating the West our way and, and making our own contributions to it. So I remember um, I, I went to the West our meeting uh, before Clayton did, and he was one of the first people I wanted to invite to be a part of it because I knew he was kind of receptive to that collaborative spirit. But I remember after that meeting, reporting back to him two things, and I, and I don't mean this sort of disrespect in any sort of disrespect, but I, first of all, that uh, the West Star demographic was an aging demographic. Um, that was the thing that was very striking when I went to that first meeting in Santa Rosa, that I was by far the youngest person there. Um, and I, I no longer think of myself as a young person. Um, so there was that, but, but also sort of that, that idea that this is, they were kind of eager for sort of people to come in and, and to go wherever the thought led us. And so I, I, I told Clayton that, you know, I, I think this could be my life's work to make sure that that sort of uh, West Star way doesn't end with these historical seminars, but we figure out sort of a way to make this work for more kind of theoretical, philosophical, theological projects as well. And it's so gratifying to see the kind of the new life uh, in Westar that has occurred over the last, you know, three, four, five years, largely under David Galston's leadership. Yeah, no, that's a good way to circle back to, uh, to Westar. I guess the reason why I wanted to ask that question, besides the fact that I, I'm a reader of uh, Clayton's work as well, is... Um, it was a 2016 AAR in Boston, and I was at one of the, I forget which one it was, maybe a decoloniality seminar, and the two of you were sitting in the row in front of me. Just, I don't know what you were giggling about, but the two of you were giggling like little schoolgirls, <laughs> and I thought it was just like very adorable, and I'm like, those guys have a real friendship, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, we, sometimes that's, that's gotten the best of us. One time we we were, I guess I'll, I won't sort of be too specific, but we were at a conference in which uh, I was really looking forward to seeing one of my, you know, when you're a graduate student, you read certain figures and you, you have, you really put them on this pedestal. And I was so looking forward to this keynote address. And uh, Clayton and I were sitting in the back of the room and uh, the person, to put it mildly, was underwhelming. Um, and a lot of what he was presenting, I, I mean, I had read word for word in sort of previous publications. And so it was a terrible disappointment. 
but our way of dealing with that was, you know, just privately kind of writing notes back to each other, like school children. It got to a point where, uh, I guess I'm not proud of this, but I'm telling it publicly anyway. It got to a point where we were laughing so hard that I, I had to excuse myself from the room. But uh, I do, I think it's, <laughs> it was befitting the sort of performance that was being given to us by the keynote scholar who was very much sort of mailing it in on that particular occasion. So. You want to name names? <laughs> no, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I always sort of think that only the most serious people can sort of uh, laugh um, or sort of truly laugh. And um, some of memories I have of, of laughing the most and the hardest and, and most uncontrollably have been in the presence of Clayton. So I think that's, that's awesome. That relationship. I wondered um, if you have an elevator pitch for Westar. Right. If, if you run into somebody and they want to know in just a couple minutes, what's your condensed explanation of what Westar is and why it matters? I should, but I'm terrible at elevator pitches. <laughs> I've always, I've never, I'm so bad at any kind of scripted conversation. There's this sort of internal block in my brain that doesn't allow me to ever follow a script. And it's so frustrating. Like I admire people who can tell a good joke and who can sort of remember a story. But every time I, every time I give a lecture, every time I tell a story, every time I butcher a joke, it's just, it's, I, I, I have this sort of thing that doesn't allow me to stay on script. So with regard to elevator pitch, I think it's important that Westar has an elevator pitch and I think it's right for it. But all I would say is that, um, over the past several decades, unbeknownst to many, uh, Westar has kind of served almost as the kind of avant-garde of religious scholarship uh, in the academy, really committed to sort of pushing boundaries of truly modeling uh, unfettered research in a collaborative way uh, that has totally upended our understanding of who the historical Jesus was, the kind of standard understanding of Christian origins or the origins of the church. And I think we're in a position now where we can begin to provide kind of viable and compelling alternatives to the kind of stale and static images for how we've conceptualized God. Uh, so that's who Westar is. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, I really appreciate the conversation. Pleasure. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Later, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the Westar Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Westar Institute or become a member, visit westarinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time.